welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Paula Lambert. Paula has authored several collections of poetry, including The Ghost of Every Feathered Thing and How to See the World. Recipient of Penn America's Langle Raman Prize for Mentorship, her poetry and prose has been supported by the Ohio Arts Council, the Greater Columbus Arts Council, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Widely published in journals and anthologies, her work has been nominated for several Best of the Net and Pushcart prizes. How to See the World was a finalist for the 2021 Ohio Anna Book Awards. Lambert is also a visual artist, small press, pu press publisher, and nascent literary translator. Through, through Full Crescent Press, she has founded and supported numerous public readings that support the intersection of poetry and science, including Ohio's annual Sun and Moon Poetry Festival, now hosted by the Ohio Poetry Association. An accomplished multidisciplinary visual artist, Lambert's work has been included in numerous solo and group exhibitions, including the 2017 biennial, biennial juried exhibition at the Ohio Arts Council's Rife Gallery. She lives in Columbus with her husband, Dr. Michael Perkins, a philosopher and technologist. And Paula, thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Could I please encourage you to read a poem? Sure. Um, this is one of my favorite ones to read. It's a Walter poem, and I think you know by now I really like Walters. <laughs> um, and it's the first poem in the book, um, The Ghost of Every Feathered Thing. It's called What They Imply by Depicting a Vulture. And the epigraph says, because in this race of creatures, there is no male. And that's from the hieroglyphics of Harapalo. In the beginning, all was female. Bird begat bird begat bird, each impregnated by the wind, which was also female. In the beginning, Vulture was goddess. For 120 days, she was pregnant, and for 120 days, she cared for her young, and for 120 days, she cared for herself, preparing to ride the wind for the five remaining days of her year. Imagine being cradled by the breath of the world, levitating through lovemaking, oh, imagine. In the beginning, we were worshipped. And in the beginning, we could fly. And in the beginning, we were loved by the air itself. In the beginning, we created. And in the beginning, sky bowed to us. And in the beginning, earth reached for us. And oh, in the beginning, we were holy. We were holy in the beginning. And can you imagine that? In the beginning, we were holy. We were whole. Mm. That's awesome. I, I, I got, I, I had the pleasure of reading that poem ahead of time and it, it, it's fascinating to see on the page, but it's excellent to hear your voice go through the repetition of that. And I liked this book because I found out after reading it that you had like almost a Da Vinci-esque like, approach to studying bird anatomy. You studied the anatomy, you, you, it, from what I understand, you did, you know, um, did you do autop autopsies on your own? Uh, did you? No, not quite that far. But but I I I do seem to come across dead birds and bird skeletons fairly often. And I always study them. And I have a number of books, actually, that are related to uh, uh, bird anatomy. There's a wonderful, wonderful book called The Unfeathered Bird by I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. Uh, Katrina Van Grau, I think. Um, she's a she's a British writer and illustrator, and it's wonderful. And I have to keep stop 
I have to stop reading that book because every time I delve into it, I come up with another poem because <laughs> because I don't know how I don't know how to explain how my work mind works that way. But yeah, I was deeply interested in the anatomy of birds. And um, I did a couple of chapbooks that I put together before. I always knew this would be a full collection. But I once I had enough poems, I, I did um, put out um, one chapbook, The Ecstasy of Wanting. And that was ex- pretty much all anatomy poems. But as I kept going and kept going, they turned into sacred bird poems. You know, there, there are sac- sacred bird mythologies in every culture across the world. And, and, and I was mystified by the whole process of this book from, from, I can tell you how it started in a moment, but um, it made sense to me on reflection. You know, the deeper we look inside ourselves, you know, the deeper we look inside, the more we find connections, I think, to something really grand and really divine, I think, that's outside of us and that connects all of us. And um, it's something I believe in deeply, even if I can't really articulate it (laughs) perfectly. Um, But hopefully the poems, you know, help me to do that. So, yeah. There was a second chat book then called, um, I don't have it in front of me and I'm losing the, uh, let me see, The Ecstasy of Wanting. And then I I love the title. I can picture the cover because I can picture the image. But the second chapbook was more on the this this sacred bird mythologies. And then I kept writing and kept writing until finally I had enough for a, a full manuscript and they all came together um, uh, into the ghost of every feathered thing. Why birds? <laughs> well This, it's the it's the question I asked myself when this started. Um, I, I was really sick for uh, for quite a while. I was really sick, and it was one of those long ongoing illnesses that nobody could diagnose or figure out. It it was traumatic. It was really traumatic. And and when you have when you're suffering and nobody can put a name on it or figure out how to help you, you know. And, and unfortunately, a lot of women deal with this not that men don't ever but women are more familiar with this you know where you go to the doctor and they like to send you to the psychiatrist because they tell you well you must be very stressed and you must have you have a lot going on and you know and and we're not always taken seriously so that's the kind of place I was in and I was not sleeping well um I had terrible insomnia and I was a really light sleeper um and I could hear everything. I could just smell it. All my senses went went crazy. And um, I would just be trying, just close to falling asleep finally when the birds would start singing. In the, you know, it's 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I'm just at the point of finally drifting off. And the birds would start singing. And the whole dawn chorus would kick in. And I was so angry at those birds. <laughs> I just hated those birds. And if I had had a shotgun, I would have shot those birds. Um, we're lucky to have a big backyard here and a lot of birds here. And it just drove me crazy. It made me just crazy. And there was something in me that finally said, if the birds are working this hard to get your attention, you need to listen to what they're trying to tell you. And I literally woke up this morning. The writing process does not often happen this way. 
you know, I think people who don't write like to see it as a magical, mystical, inspiring process. It doesn't always happen this way, but I did finally wake up one morning after finally being able to sleep. I woke up and I grabbed whatever paper, notebook, envelope I could find, and I started writing down titles of poems and lines of poems. And I had about, I don't know how many pages of notes. And I just knew all of a sudden what this book was going to be. I had lines to poems that were poems that I didn't even complete the poem until like six months later, you know, it, it's hard to explain. It's really hard to explain. And it was frankly, just a very sort of mystical experience. And, and that's what kept me going through, through, you know, being sick and getting well, and it, it sustained me to do this work. And, and, and I did learn a lot from it. And it did help me to center myself and to, it did help me figure out how to see the world, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I was working on this book for about nine, eight or nine years, I think. And I couldn't get it to come together as the final manuscript. I knew I was getting closer and closer and I couldn't get it to come together. And then the pandemic hit us all. And I started writing daily poems when the pandemic started. Um, and I was actually uh, uh, posting them on Facebook, which I wouldn't normally do. And um, so that was what, late March or early April. Um, and I kept writing through the spring, through the summer and by June, I had the whole manuscript and by September, this was published, How to See the World. And then once that was published and set, I took a look back at this manuscript and I said, oh, I see this now, it's so clear. And I had a new title for it. I reorganized the poems. By then I had a few more poems, new poems that I could add to it. And I saw it with new eyes. So these po these two books really came together at the same time in a strange way. But the the bird book I'd been working on a very long time, and how to see the world was complete opposite. I worked on it just a few months and and talked to Larry at um, Bottom Dog Press, Larry Smith, and he said, "Yeah, Paula, this is yeah, let's do this." So we got it done. Oh, it's fantastic. And what I mean. A lot of the themes in How to See the World are about acceptance or letting go. Or, I mean, you you mentioned that. Well, no, there there's you had mentioned that because I, I before we started recording, I said you know you you mentioned breathing a lot and yeah. ritual yeah. a lot, and there there's cyclical things that occur within the poems. Um, I think that the line in Opossum Diversion Strategy. There's mm -hmm. a line where you put respect the ritual. And I would maybe argue that's one of the themes of the book is to respect the ritual. And does that come from that moment of acceptance with the birds? Like how did that line up? Or are you naturally that type of person where if like someone knocks enough times, you let them in? Or is it, or is it more <laughs> Well, that's what happened with the birds. <laughs> well, bir birds, not, not people. If so. <laughs> well, it's, I was really interested in this question when I saw it, this idea of ritual, because it is something that, I, I have been thinking a lot about in recent years, the importance of ritual. Um, but I'm not sure that it was something I was thinking of when I was actually writing the book. The breath was very intentional. Um, uh, I, I have a history of um, panic disorder, I guess we would call it now. I was actually diagnosed agoraphobic when I was still in high school. 
I couldn't go anywhere. I had severe, severe panic attacks. Um, I learned, I won't go into all that. And actually my first book is um, partly about that. It's a part, part, it's about the illness I suffered, but I have a lifelong history of severe anxiety and severe depression, suicide attempts. I learned very young that, uh, I want to say control of the breath, but it's not control at all. If you're going through an anxiety attack and you're hyperventilating and you can't get your breath and you just, you're, it's, it's terror is what it is. It's sheer terror. The body just goes crazy. And, um, and it does feel scary. Like you might die and you're trying to get your breath back and you're trying to control your breath. And what I learned really young is not to fight it which is sort of counterintuitive when you're in the middle of it. You know, you feel like you're grasping for breath, but you sort of have to just give into it. You just sort of have to say, all right, I know this is going to pass. I know it's going to come back. You know, you learn techniques about breathing deeply and slowly and out through your mouth and so forth. And through the years, I mean, I'm 58 at this point. This stuff started when I was like 15 years old. So, I mean, I've had a, a, a lifetime of dealing with this and getting really deeply into meditation and meditation workshops and Qigong and Tai Chi and, you know, really learning to focus on the breath, to just focus on the breath and to breathe in deeply with full focus and 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 mindfulness and to and to breathe out and to breathe all the way out. For me, that's the key because... If you really focus on a full exhale where you're letting go of all the breath in your body, you realize, oh, I would have started, if I wasn't thinking, I would have started the inhale before I was really done with this exhale, if that makes sense. And you find out how much you've actually been holding on to that you've never released. That's a pretty big metaphor right there, right? I mean, because there's a lot of shit that we, can I say shit? There's a lot of shit that we hold on to that we don't let go of sometimes we don't even know that like like the breath we don't even know that we're holding on to it and you have to let it go you have to let it go and when when covid started of course it's it was a respiratory virus right where that's that's where it was attacking people and and it was terrible we were all terrified before vaccinations before you know for a while the governor had us all shut down and Things were strangely quiet everywhere. And um, uh, for me, I'd had practice enough of my life in being frightened and being terrified and being feeling out of control. You know, to me, I, it's like, okay, I got this. I know what to do, <laughs> you know? And 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 I actually, um, I, I always hesitate to say this because of course this this pandemic has been horrific for you know for all of us and 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 we have you know my family did lose extended family members and people got sick and I saw friends lose family members I mean of course it's been terrible but for me it was also really helpful and really beautiful and it was a chance uh to stay sequestered and to and to be mindful all the way of course I had you know, I'm lucky to do that. I'm privileged to do that. My husband is a very good companion. Our kids were grown and out of the house. <laughs> um, 
Um, you know what I mean? But it was a chance to be very, to sort of be, to breathe through it in, in a mindful way. And I think sometimes um, it's important to hold space for joy, to hold space for peace, to hold space for a lot of things when it seems like the world is out of control. You know what I mean? It's really easy to tap into that. And of course, there's things we should be angry about. And of course, there's all kinds of issues of justice and, you, you know, uh, there's so much that for us all to be so anguished about. And yet within that, if we get so involved in that, we're ultimately not helping anybody and not helping ourselves. And you have to hold space for peace and joy. And you have to, for me, it was looking out the window and it was spring and things were just starting to bloom and to blossom and to, you know, and, and it was saying, look how everything that's going on, it seems like the world is falling apart, but it's not, it's blossoming, it's growing, you know, and that seemed an important thing to, to stay focused on. Okay. And, That's a and, lot. I just, I just threw at you, but I hope it all makes some kind of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. There's a lot. There's a lot to respond to in there too. I think, you know, the repetition and the cycles, because you talk about cycles of like hunger, cycles about like plant cycles. Um, yes. And those things. I mean, the I think the poems themselves breathe, and I think that those cycles are part yes. of the inhalation and the exhalation. I, I really do. I really did like um, the ghost of every feathered thing. I liked them. Or I liked them both. I'm sorry. Um, how to see the world. Because I, my question is it, with that structure, with, with putting that stuff in, was that um, you trying to exert control over the editorial process or was it you allowing the poems to be a natural extension of this thing that you've been living with for so long or both uh, it's it's both of those it's very much both of those things it's actually a really interesting question for me uh, I, um i really believe in the the power of the unconscious and and a lot let it you know standing out of its way and letting it sort of take over and for me that's directly connected to to the poems too that they I sort of stand out of the way and they come, sometimes they come whole, you know what I mean? Sometimes they really, they come whole and I just write them down and there's actually very little revision. Uh, not all the time, but a, uh, quite a lot of the time. Um, but I also learned a long time ago, you know, I was a prose writer first and my MFA is actually in fiction. And for a long time uh, after my MFA, I went to nonfiction and memoir and I was really focused for a very long time on writing as a healing process and writing toward wellness. And I, for me, it felt like the revision process, right? Which is a big part of the writing process. That is a way to take control over a thing, you know, to take control over a story or to take control over, to see that we have some kind of control and we can make things, we can craft things slowly and patiently into something that tells the right story, the, you know, that gives us voice. Like, you know, for a long time as a kid, I was so painfully shy as a kid, so painfully, painfully shy. Um, and, and to some extent, I think I, maybe I didn't 
have much of a voice or I didn't know how to I didn't know I'm I'm thinking of David Hassler here because he can really he really expresses this stuff so much better when he talks about the idea of having a voice he, he's he's he, he's a wonder Dave Hassler at you know who heads wit poetry who was in my MFA program he was in poetry at the time that I was studying fiction but he speaks to this really beautifully but when you can patiently go back over something and say oh this connects to this and I can make this smoother and this tells the story the way that I want to and feels like it's exactly what I want to say oh man that's a wonderful thing <laughs> that's a wonderful thing you know it, it it's a it's a way of having control in a, in a world where that seems so out of control for me for me I mean that's yeah. So it's both. It, I mean, you have to stand out of its way, but it's okay to come. That's what craft is, right? And that's what, in, you know, intention is. And that's maybe what changes, you know, journal writing is important and wonderful. And whatever writing we do that nobody ever has to see it is, is very important. Um, but the idea of coming back in and saying, I can make this a little better. I can make this a little smoother. I can make this connect to that. I'm thinking here both in terms of stories, I guess, prose and poetry. But for me, it's a way of feeling like I, I do have some kind of control. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, going back to like, let it happen. Like, there's, there, I mean, you got to have both of those in the writing process. Yeah, so, you know, I, I feel like sometimes if I'm really rigid about a rough draft, then I get to the editing process and I got to kind of like let the poem do what it will do what it wants and give it some space to breathe. Yes. And on on the flip side, if I've just got a mess on my hands because I was doing some stream of conscious nonsense at like 2 a.m., then when I go yeah. to to edit, I've got to exert some control. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. And I think yeah. And sometimes we have to be patient about taking something that maybe we think is brilliant, but is actually a mess. You know, you sometimes we just need to be patient about putting something aside and looking at it with completely fresh eyes later on and saying, and, and that's the case in life too. Sometimes we're deep in the middle of a situation where we can't tell what's up or down. And sometimes we think we're sure we're, we're right in whatever situation. And then you, you take some time and look back and say, oh, Yeah. A good night's sleep can <laughs> really help us out a lot because we can see for a clearer mind. <laughs> Am I overreacting to this? Because I have to ask myself. <laughs> it's a fun, it's balance. You know, we said that earlier when we were talking before we started recording, but I, I think that's, for me, balance is everything. Balance is everything. Huh. Um, okay. Um, and you have... I want to I want to mention I want to get to uh, every feathered thing real quick because you you had talked about uh, birds very beautifully and you elevate them to this spiritual level which is I I love and then you have this environmental streak in you and it comes out in these like snippets and like in, in turkey vulture it starts you mentioned near the beginning that they carry a great weight it's what we ask of them. And I thought that's a great way to summarize Thanksgiving, which is really brutal from the turkey's perspective. And, yes. And the, the, the furcula. I have another poem about the furcula, which is the wishbone that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
That's supposed to be, you hand that to kids and say, why don't you rip this apart and God will bless you with, with the, with whoever gets the greater half. And yes. the turkey's probably thinking, well, that sucks. You know, <laughs> I couldn't even donate this to science. They wouldn't let me. <laughs> you end that, you end that poem by saying, um, offer alms to that dark spirit. Pray he comes to your backyard. Pray he comes to you. Yes. And. So I was hoping you could talk, because you you also do, in your studio art, you do, like, recycled, like, minded exhibits. You do work with cardboard. You do work with reclaimed materials. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit and its relation to your work and how, and how it pops up in this collection. <clears throat> it's really interesting to me that you see that in the collection, because um, I'm, I'm not sure that I was focused on that yet. But by the time I finish this book and, and the work that I'm doing now is very much, very much focused in that direction. And 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 to a large extent, um, Suzanne Mahler um, uh, was a big influence on that because she did an eco poetry workshop that I was kind of blown away by. Um, Suzanne is a really interesting person. And, and for me, she's a very intimidating person. I love her, but she's, she has a very big presence, you know? And, <laughs> and, and in the eco poetry, she says, no, this is how we have to be. This is life and death at this point. You know, we, we can't pussy around in these poems. You know, you have to, you have to say, you know, this is a problem. This is a crisis. And at first I was like, hmm. Um, but but so a lot of my writing since that workshop that um, uh, has been more direct and more, I've been able to be more, I don't like for poetry to be overly didactic, you know what I mean? That 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 bothers me. And when I feel myself going that way, I pull back and say, this isn't working. I have to start again. I don't like for things to be overly didactic, but there are. I mean, there are birds literally falling out of the sky. You know what I mean? There, there, we we are in environmental crisis. There, there is, you know, but there are ways to talk about it that I, th I think achieve that balance. So the the collection that I recently finished, it's called "As If This Did Not Happen Every Day." It's much more intentional in that way. It's also much more more feminist, and I think those two things um, overlap. Um, the poem I read, the vulture poem, the other vulture poem. The other vulture poem. I have a lot of vulture poems, but the um, uh, what they imply by depicting a vulture, um, you know, it's very much from the feminist perspective too. I, I'm I'm wanting to pull back here because really this conversation could go several different ways, and I want to go back to your original question. I want to stay focused on it, but uh, you might need to help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> so let 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 me ask you this then. Um, what do you want people to take away from every feathered thing? And what are you trying to achieve in this next collection? Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned the Turkey Vulture poem that said, uh, he comes for you. Uh, offer, offer alms to that dark spirit. Offer alms to that dark spirit. That's central to me in everything that I do. And if there's anything to take away, I think that would be it. Um, interesting um i've never i've never been afraid of the dark places i've lived most of my life in the dark places you know severe depression and um and i'm sort of willing to look 
at the ugly bones of a dead bird and find out, you know, gee, what happened here? And and to look at things that people don't like to talk about, right? To me, it's really a problem that there is so much we don't like to talk about um, or and we're unwilling to look at. It's a problem for for us personally. It's a problem for us collectively. And we do need to look at the dark side of things. However, we might define that. You know, we do need to look at the problems in our culture, the the, the problems we're having ourselves. We do need to see those things because there's no other way to get past it. And there's no other way to grow from it. And you can suppress and suppress and suppress and turn away and turn away and turn away. And that big, dark thing is only going to get worse. Um, it's, like, it's like fighting for the breast, fighting, fighting for your breath when you feel like things are taking over and you don't know what to do and you're trying to fight. What you're really trying to do is say, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. Well, guess what? It's happening. <laughs> you know, so you just kind of have to go with it and you have to. Yeah, so that's that's a big part of, of what I write about. That's a big part of what that poem is about. You know, people see vultures as a sign of death and dying, which is something we don't like to think about. And they see it as a bad omen and, and a terrible thing. And they're actually, you know, vultures don't kill anything. You know, think of... <laughs> Think of the death and destruction humans cause, you know, that what, what we do to each other. And, 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 you know, vultures are sacred in many cult in cultures, you know, you know, um, and they clean up everything. They clean up disease. They clean up, you know, things that would make us sick. They're, they're a beautiful creature. I've come to think of them as people still think they're ugly. I've actually come to see them as beautiful in every possible way. And that's important. They're in, that's an important lesson for all of us that we need to dig down deep into the carrion sometimes, you know what I mean? And, and deal with it and clean it up because if we don't, it stinks and it rots and it gets worse. Absolutely. I, I agree with all that entirely because, um, you know, I'm, I'm bipolar. And so when I feel a cycle coming and I know I've got to deal with it and it's, it, they last weeks, they could last months. They last as long as they last. And it's really frustrating. And, mm -hmm. uh, I have to immediately make changes in order to accommodate it, but that's what it is. It's accommodation. It's, yeah. you, you know, that the waves are coming. So you just try to hold on in a way that doesn't capsize the boat and that's it. And, and, um, when when I started trying to write about it, because I'm I'm trying to do similar things, I'm I'm trying to process with writing and and try to explain it, and it makes people uncomfortable. I, I wrote a poem about suicide, and I I enjoy reading it because not because it makes people uncomfortable. That's not my goal, but because I know I'm exposing people to things that they perhaps don't want to think about, and maybe they should think about it a little bit sometimes mm -hmm. and just be faced with it because you can see the uncomfortableness spread out. You can see it on people's faces and they don't like hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that shouldn't be your goal is to like shock and scare and make people uncomfortable. But um, you, if you're dealing with important material or something that you've personally gone through, um, you know, you know that that's how some of that impact is landing mm -hmm. and you have to be comfortable with being in that place in order to deliver it in the first place. You have to be yeah. able to step into it and not like, as you said, breathe, <laughs> mm -hmm. breathe through it, um, mm -hmm. proverbially or literally. 
And for however many people there are that are uncomfortable by it or turned off by it or whatever, there are a thousand more people who need to hear that. You know, a lot of what we do as poets is is give voice to the voiceless, you know, people who aren't able to articulate things or figure things out or people who hear something and say, oh, that's what it is. Or, you know, you would you would know if you're in the depths of depression, the worst part of it, the worst part of it is feeling absolutely alone, like you're the only person going through it, that you're isolated, that you're alone, that no one else feels like this. No one else has ever felt like this. No one else will ever feel like this. It, and just knowing someone else is out there who has gone through it or is going through it is a beautiful thing. It just takes, it's like the breath. It's like that exhale. It's like, oh, I'm not alone. And I, I had that revelation that came to me once when I was in the depths of despair. And it came to me like a vision almost of how many people really, I felt so alone. And it came to me like a vision. This is not alone at all. There are so many people suffering through so many things, you know, and I, to feel that solidarity becomes a whole different thing. And I, I, I always feel kind of sad when people at a, at a reading at an open mic or whatever it is, when they'll apologize for reading a sad poem, you know, <laughs> well, this is kind of a downer and I'm, I'm sorry to be, and I think, no, no, that's fine. We need that. People need to hear that. Yeah. The world is not a jolly happy place all the time. But it, but but we can find our way to to jolly happy moments, you know, but but not by paving over the sad stuff. You got to you know, let it all you, you need to look at it all. Yeah. It's like a humid bathroom after a shower. You have to let it ventilate otherwise it's going to grow mold. Mhm. There you go. See, metaphors abound. <laughs> you can tell it's two writers talking to each other. Uh, can you remember? Can you remember that first time that you felt empowered to process your grief through writing? Oh, I'm still doing that. I'm working on a grief poem right now. <laughs> right this minute, uh, I'm still doing it. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you this, I'll give you, this is kind of what made me sort of, I, I was writing fiction for, for most of my life. I'm getting old enough now, I have to stop saying for most of my life, I guess I have to say for most of my younger life. Um, I mean, from the time, I started my first novel when I was 11 years old. I started writing really young, started writing seriously really young. And thankfully, I had a junior high school teacher who took me seriously, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I somewhere around the time of the, finishing the MFA program, right? I mean, I'd gone as far as I could in writing fiction, and I started to feel like, you know, <laughs> an awful lot of this stuff really is pretty autobiographical. Why am I not just telling the real stories that I really... And that's when I kind of switched over to memoir and, and personal essay and writing. I felt like I was kind of faking a lot of things by writing fiction. I mean, I enjoyed writing fiction and I, you know, enjoyed reading fiction and, and, uh, but I, I felt like there was a, I came to feel like there was a pretense about it, that I was avoiding writing about things that I really should be writing about more directly. Um, and poetry for me was always a tool. If I was writing a scene, 
I mean, this is this is so literal. When I like writing a, a scene in a story, say that I couldn't get it to come out right. I just couldn't. I couldn't get it to work. And I would. This is, of course, the days of you know yellow pads and pencils. You know more more so than I was before. I had really taught myself to compose on a keyboard. You know, and I would be trying to write it and having problems. And I push it all away, pull out a new clean piece of paper, and write it out as a poem. And I'd be like, Oh, I got it. Okay. And then I'll push the poem away and go back and finish the paragraph or finish the page, right? So for me, poetry was like this tool that would help me sort of figure out whatever I was trying to do in the prose. But once I figured it out, I just tossed the poem aside. And I, I luckily, again, I had people around me, good people who said, Paula, <laughs> hey, some of these poems are pretty good. You know, you need to save these. You need to submit these. And um, eventually... Um, David Shevin and George Looney were big influences. They they um, talked me into submitting my first chapbook, and it got accepted the first place I sent it, which was Pudding House at the time. Um, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> well, maybe there's something to this." <laughs> and when I got sick, when I got really very seriously sick, I I lost a lot of my cognitive abilities. I I could I I mean I developed I mean I really was sick for a while. I developed aphasia, you know, I could say that that stick that you write with, but I couldn't come up with the word pencil. I I um uh I couldn't read a paragraph and tell you what I had read, you know, it was really, really difficult. And um when I started realizing I was better or getting better, I wrote two poems in three days or three poems in two days, I can't remember, but I started writing again and said, Oh, okay. And I think for a while poetry came more easily to, to me than 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 prose did because maybe because it was small but but I keep trying to go back to prose I keep trying but I feel like man I I, I feel like I'm so much better able to articulate everything I want to say in a poem yeah you know I, I understand and and I you do I mean you do a ton of stuff um, between your <laughs> studio art and your fiction and, and everything else. And you're, you have a very community facing profile between those different mediums. Where are the dividing lines between those? I love asking this when people have multidisciplinary <laughs> interests. Yeah. So. I, I feel like it, for me, it's very fluid when the, the uh, because, and I, you know, it's very image based, right? You can write through an image, right? I mean, poetry makes use of imagery, right? But um but so for me, if I'm not working, the last couple of years, really since the pandemic, I've done mostly writing. Um, but for a couple of years before that, I was doing mostly, you know, the visual art. It's, it's, I don't know how to explain it really, except that to me, they're almost the same, same thing, really. When I was a kid, I, I, I loved to write, but for me, writing was very private. And I also love to do artwork and that was more public, uh, partly because it's, you know, bigger and it's there. And so I got a lot of support for the artwork and I ended up going to art school, except I went to a trade school because I said I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. And I found a school that did um, that offered a sign painting program and it was a way to you to do use my art but in a practical way that I could make money 
of course it ended up being a dying industry, but I mean, I was out of it before it died out completely, but I was able to learn a trade and, and, and do a trade, you know, so I sort of, I don't know how to, I've lost track again. Artwork and writing for me, they're just fluid. They go back and forth. And the artwork I most like to do these days is um, collage, mixed media collage. Because it's literally pulling images randomly out of the air and putting them together and they begin to tell stories and they begin to make sense. And it's, it's sort of the same thing we're doing with words, I think, and putting pulling images and words and lines together until they make sense and tell a story. So I don't know how to explain it better than that. No, I think you just did. I think, and this is me being over general, but I think that some people their creative process overrides the mediums and like they use the mediums yeah. when they feel it's appropriate and other people have something and they're much more deliberate about selecting those mediums because those mediums have tools they want mm -hmm. and i think if your creative process is very very powerful or like you know i I, th I think yours is i think yours like looking at your art and reading your poetry and i, I think that there's strong similarities the, the two that they share and and you approach it deliberately with with ideas from your head and your your gut um but i think other people are out to like tell a story or write a poem which is i think coming at it from the other end of the spectrum yeah the, i don't the, know if that's accurate but that's how i kind of see it in my head yeah and i did a show a while ago it was a solo show and i did it at the young house i'm very if you hadn't picked up by now i'm very union <laughs> I uh, studied a lot about Carl Jung, you know, when I was in grad school. And that's where I come at this whole idea of the unconscious from and so forth. But I did a show at the Jung house and I realized one thing that the one thing that differentiates is that I'm much better able to use humor in the artwork than I am in the writing. The, the writing tends to be serious and it's it's hard to pull off a funny poem. I really so admire the people who are good. Nick, Nick, uh, uh, I want to pronounce his name right. Masio. I know somebody else with a similar name and I always mix up the name. Nick Masiosi is so good at a funny poem. There are some people that are just so good. Justin Ham Pulling off a funny poem and I admire it so much. Yeah. And I realized when I did that show, oh, somehow something's channeling in the artwork that I'm never able to do easily in, in the poetry. So that that's an interesting distinction that I, I don't understand, but it, I, I, I was, I've at least been able to make note of it, be conscious of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think that there has to be dividing lines or you even need to know where they fall or, you know, I'm just, I like asking that question because I think when people get really, really caught up in different types of things, um, like when, like Bonnie, she, she was a journeyman glass blower. I found that, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so cool. And yeah. I really wanted to know how does it go, you know? And so no, I appreciate you answering. <laughs> um, I want to ask one last question and it's about, cause you do so much work for and with the community and um, you're, you're, you're absolutely everywhere. And, you know, you've created programming and, and when you're going to put like build support for projects, what advice do you have people who either, don't know much about the community and want to engage or are part of the community and maybe want to set up a program of their own. Um, and what do you think 
is what, what what things do you think are critical for building support for community projects? Inclusivity, for sure, and certain, um, and also keeping things accessible, accessible slash affordable. You you know what I mean. But I I do want to say though that I I feel a great wave of modesty coming over me because there are so many people who do so much more in terms of you know community work that i mean there's so many people who do just extraordinary things and though and those are many of the same people who influenced me you know what i mean i mean in the in columbus i mean scott woods is here writers black poetry which just shut down but was the first poetry community i came to and then i'm kind of shifted um uh to the poetry forum and poetry forum is run by by steve steve i mean steve steve abbott and others who are really connected to ComFest here, which is a community festival. I mean, all of the people I met here and worked with here were very much focused on community. And a few years ago, I had to pull back from that work because it was overwhelming me. And I just desperately, I felt like all my life, I've done all these other things to try to, you know, quote unquote, support my writing. And I had reached the point where I said, I just want to focus on my writing and it's around the same time the pandemic hit actually. And and then I, you know, had two books all of a sudden and, and a third manuscript and, and, you know, I really felt the need to pull inward. Um, so I admire the people that have, you know, but I was for a while co-hosting um, peripatetic poets um, with uh, Susan Hendrickson and um, others had hosted it before us and others after, but we worked really hard to bring in a variety of voices, um, you know, to, uh, to we we worked hard on bringing in interesting programming and trying to do things that weren't just the exact same things everybody else was doing. You know, we tried to make it new and different and not just have Columbus writers and bring in people from across Ohio and across the region and um, but then moving into um, the uh, poetry at Perkins Observatory is how it started. We did a benefit and I worked with Bill Hurley and, um, but that was just a cool, I think a lot of what I learned from writer's block and the energy there, it's, a, you remember the old Andy Rooney movies, you know, where it's like, let's put on a show, you know? Yeah, my parents watched those, yeah. <laughs> there is very much that, energy here and it's like oh I've got an idea well let's put on a show you know and and you just do and you figure out it's kind of easy to do it's a lot easier than you realize and then like with poetry at Perkins Observatory turned into the Sun and Moon Festival because we added um, Stratford Ecological Center so we could do daytime work and nighttime work you know and we this is when we had the you know you could look through the telescopes and the first time we did it we saw Saturn it was amazing it was magical Uh Um, so then we, we did it again. And then I said, well, let's do a daytime show and an evening show. And we did it with, with um, uh, you know, we needed a venue. And we said, well, let's make it benefit the venues, you know. And it it was successful. And that's very rewarding. Um, but it was also fun, 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 fun. We had a haiku death match. And you know, it was fun. You know, it gets, yeah. and there were kids there and older people, all ages and all, you want it to be as inclusive as, and then it got to, I knew I couldn't keep doing it. I, it was starting to impact my health again. And that's when I talked to, talked to Chuck and I you know, do you think maybe OPA would be interested in taking that over? And thankfully they'd been, you know, 
hoping to do a poetry festival and weren't sure how to so it just kind of slid it all over there and you know we still support it and it's a wonderful thing to see OPA take that over but I, I do feel a certain you know wanting to protest a little back bit because I, I have had to pull back from that a lot and it's again balance in all things it was beginning to be too much to me for me but it may it may be fluid and shift again because uh, I'm oh, I'm always have ideas for projects <laughs> always <laughs> always always there's always something new I want to be doing and something new I want to try, and I've been fortunate to be surrounded by people that have the same sense of fun and adventure. I think so. I feel that I constantly I like I just constantly have ideas and yeah, yeah I don't always have an outlet for them but generally. I have a few that like people, there's always someone that's willing to say yes. And, yes. Yeah. Um, as long as, you know, the enthusiasm keeps up and everything, it's good. <laughs> and for me too, I will add this for me too. What was important when I was organizing, especially that poetry at Perkins, which turned into the whole festival, I didn't want it. You, <sighs> when you're doing poetry for other poets, it only goes so far. You know what I mean? You want to take poetry into circles and areas where people who think they don't like poetry or think or don't really know what poetry is. You want to get people digging on poetry and saying, oh, well, that's actually kind of fun. And the whole idea of the, the science thing was to get maybe poetry people who maybe weren't that into science, you know, the math and science and say, hey, this is pretty fascinating stuff. And actually, this is really good subject matter for writing poems, right? So get, you know, the poetry people turn on to the science and get to the scientists who are like, really, poetry? <laughs> and, then, and then they would see the show and say, oh, this is really pretty great, you know? So poetry can be very insular. Poetry and poetry communities can be insular because we're sort of feeding ourselves. You know what I mean? And poetry does so much for so many that I'm always looking at how to spread that outward, how to get people to see that this is good for every, this is a good outlet for, it's it's just an important thing to have in the world, really. We, we grow up through an educational system where we're taught to memorize poetry and poetry is deep and poetry is mysterious and poetry is hard and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of cool to put something out there. It's like, oh, poetry's fun. Poetry's pretty cool. Oh, that poem made me cry. Isn't that cool? Oh, that poem made me laugh. Isn't that cool? So that's another part of it. <laughs> I can I can definitely understand that too. I mean, I think it seeing that light bulb that you're describing go off mm -hmm. in a local community community yeah. event is probably more rewarding. Yes. It absolutely. is nice to go to a workshop and be like, oh friends, I know all you people. It's great to see you all again. Like that's fun too. But you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to hear someone with your level of experience and your time in the community say it's okay to pull back. I think that there are probably a few people that wish perhaps they had that level of forgiveness or or felt like it would be okay if they did, you know. It is okay. I mean, there are lots of people out there, you know, willing to do lots of things and it's okay to say we need help and it's okay to just kind of pull down. I mean, at least that, that's, that's part of the balance that has been important to me my whole life, you know, cause you can, you, you do recognize what's on the horizon if you don't put up some 
boundaries, you know. Yeah, yeah. burnout. Among yeah, others. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, could you please wrap us up with a poem? Oh, sure. Oh, I almost forgot we were doing another. Okay, yes. I'm going to read, this is from the last poem in my newest manuscript, and it actually just won the Slippery Elm Prize. So shout out to the good people at Slippery Elm who do such good work. And Congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's called The Mechanics of Flight. The mosquitoes are feasting in Wellfleet, mostly on me. 14 bites on one uncovered arm as I greet my host in the drive. We've never seen anything like it, she tells me. But I think of the birds I came here to see. Comfort myself thinking they'll be feasting too this year, fat and happy in the marshes along the shore. Later at the sanctuary, I ask the ladies in the welcome center three times before they understand me if that thinking is right. Much as that helps us, says one. Small comfort, sniffs another. On the salt marsh trail, air crisp with the scent of the sea, a red-winged blackbird cries for my attention, flirts and darts before landing on the bridge before me. See me, he says, aren't I pretty? I laugh my way toward him and he flies into the reeds, lands on the blade so tall and fine, I can't believe it supports his weight. See what I can do, see? And when he's sure I have, he flies to the top of a tree in the oak grove. Then, not satisfied, finds an even higher perch. See how high I can fly, he says. See me? See? But a blue-gray catbird has grumbled loudly, swooping before me so my eye can't help but follow him back to the reeds. I study his shape and sound, unsure what he intends. But the red-winged blackbird sings out shrilly. When I turn to him, he's gone. It's been a long day, but I know he means for me to follow him the only direction he could have gone, inward. Deep in the grove, I spot an egret, holy, white, alone. I gaze in stunned silence while the split-tailed swallows dive and dart as if the scene were not exquisite enough. I stare until I'm full, can feast no more, Turn back to the path I came from, marveling that I'd not felt one mosquito bite all afternoon. Until one does, suddenly, in the center of my right scapula, tiny thrust nudging me to remember the vestiges of all my lives, the mechanics of flight, that we all have wings or had them once, that each feast is the same as every other, that here, we nourish one another. Beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to you and to OPA for all the good work everybody's doing there. Such an important organization. They do so much. Yeah, I, I definitely. And if, if you're not a member, become a member that, you know, the whole, Absolutely. Spiel, the whole spiel. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the, the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Paula, thank you so very much for coming in. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you.